And if you have your copy of Scripture, I'd invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 2 again this evening. We are resuming uh, the series that Pastor Barrett and I started uh, many weeks ago on the shadows of the sun in the pages of Scripture. We are looking uh, tonight at the second part of what I began the last time I preached in the evening on uh, Christ as the last Adam. He is the eschatological Adam. He is the one who does everything Adam failed to do, and he undoes everything that Adam did, bringing all the sin and all the misery into this world. And so to that end, I want us to look tonight at a few verses in Genesis chapter 2, and then I want us to read several verses in Genesis chapter 3. We're looking, first of all, at Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17. And if you have your copy of Scripture, I know you're going to find it helpful to have that open and to be reading along with me. And having created Adam and and created the garden and placed Adam in the garden, um, the Lord now comes and Moses records these words for us. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then if you would turn over to the next chapter, Genesis chapter 3, and beginning in verse 6, our first mother being tempted by the evil one, we now read, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who were with her, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go. Dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband or for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you that you shall not eat it, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, in 1527, almost to the day, certainly probably to the month from when Martin Luther had nailed his 95 theses to the uh, door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Luther is believed to have penned the words to the hymn that we have come to know and love, a mighty fortress is our God. Luther was still beset by persecutions. He was still being surrounded by many enemies and much opposition. In addition, there was a bubonic plague at that time, and Luther, reflecting on the words of Psalm 46, wrote that hymn that we've come to know and love under the original title, um, which was, Our God, He is a Strong Castle. Now, the words that Luther wrote in that original penning of that hymn are quite a bit different than they are in what we know in A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and yet there are similarities in the second verse, and it's far and away my favorite verse in that hymn. In the original, Martin Luther wrote these words, "'Tis all in vain do what we can, our strength is soon dejected, but he fights for us, the right man by God himself elected. Ask thou who is this? Jesus Christ it is, Lord of hosts alone, and God but him is none, so he must win the battle. Um, I, I probably sang that modernized version of Luther's hymn since I was four or five years old, and it wasn't until this year, until recently, that I realized when Luther says we're not the right man on our side, he's not saying Jesus is the right man for us, He's saying he is the righteous man. He is the just man. He is the right man. He is the last Adam. He is the one who came conquering and to conquer. That's why Luther can end at the end and say he is none but God himself. And he must win the battle. The entire history of redemption is the unfolding of God's plan of the right man coming to undo everything Adam did and to do everything Adam failed to do. And if we're going to understand the opening chapters of the book of Genesis in any right way, if we're going to understand it, we have to, in a sense, read back what the Bible declares about Jesus onto those opening chapters to understand who Adam was and what God was doing with Adam and what happened with Adam and the devastation that Adam brought into this world so that we can understand our need and the glories of the right man who came to win the battle. Um, I want us to consider a few things as we look tonight at these passages out of Genesis 2 and chapter 3. I want us to consider first the, the broken covenant of works, and then I want us to consider the pronouncement of the curse of the broken covenant of works, and then I want us to consider the reversal 
of the curse of the broken covenant of works. Now, Genesis doesn't tell us that God entered into a covenant with Adam. Nowhere is the word bereath used in the Hebrew. In fact, that word is not going to be used until Noah and the Noahic covenant. And yet theologians have, especially in the Reformed tradition, have noted that everything about God's dealings with Adam in the garden have all of the marks and characteristics of a covenantal arrangement. Our own Westminster standards speak about God condescending and entering into a covenant of works. Sometimes they call it a covenant of life with Adam. And and they will talk about what was required of it. Perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience of all men for all time. Not just for Adam, but for all of his descendants. And they will talk about the promises of the covenant of works. That, that God would promise life upon obedience and that he threatened death upon disobedience. And they will speak um, very clearly, especially the writers of the Westminster Standards will speak this way in their own writings, about the importance of understanding that God didn't have to enter in to a covenant of works with Adam, but that that was a voluntary condescension, that God voluntarily condescended to offer Adam something even greater than what he gave Adam at creation. Um, God didn't owe Adam anything. Adam owed God everything. If Adam had obeyed perfectly and fully, unless God had promised to give him something higher and better than what he already possessed, then Adam uh, wouldn't have merited anything from God. God didn't have to give Adam anything for what he did. God determined to show his overflowing goodness. This is a remarkable thing if we think about it. Even though the covenant of works was based on Adam's obedience, strict obedience in one sense, it it was a gracious act of God. It shows the gracious bounty of God that God wanted to bless his creatures. Adam stood as the head of humanity. What Adam did... He didn't do for himself, as, as old writers will say, as a private person. He did it as our representative. We are what we are because he was who he was and because God arranged things in that way. He was our federal representative. Um, this world is what it is because God so constituted everything at creation with Adam as, uh, and the old writers will call him this, the vicegerent of God, the the Lord of the lower world, that that God gave him rule and reign and dominion over creation. God gave him bounty, and yet God said as the representative who is to fill the earth with righteous image bearers. He and Eve together should have fulfilled that. We've we've seen that. And yet, in, in so doing that, God was showing his goodness and his bounty to Adam. Um, and Adam owed God obedience. You know, one of the very simple reasons, if you ask the question, why, why did God set one tree off limits? Why, why if he gave Adam every tree to eat from, including the tree of life, why, why did God set one tree among all the trees of the gardens, garden off limits? It wasn't a magic tree. Um, there was nothing that it would have worked out of itself and, and given him something mystically. It was a tree just like any other tree 
In a sense, it's right to say that God arbitrarily picked one tree out of all the trees of the garden and said, this tree will be the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this tree of its fruit you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it in dying, you will die. Why did God do that? Well, Adam needed a tangible, visible object to remind him that God was the creator and he was the creature. That's the first very clear reason that Adam needed to be reminded that God was Lord over all. That in God setting apart one thing from all the other things he graciously gave to our first father, God was reminding Adam, you are but a mere creature. But then there was something else. God was setting apart this tree as he did with the tree of life to serve as sacraments of the covenant of works. Calvin will speak of this. Augustine will allude to this. Many of the reformers will will talk about the two trees being sacraments, just like baptism and the Lord's Supper. God sets them apart to serve a special purpose, to symbolize something, to show forth something. Well, what, what did they show forth? What would Adam have gained if he had obeyed? Well, Adam was meant by obedience to gain the experiential knowledge of good and evil. Adam, to this point, only knew good in his soul. Uh, Until the evil one comes in, he had not ever even witnessed evil. Adam, by rejecting Satan's temptation, should have learned the good and been able to experience the good in contrast to the evil. But Adam, in breaking the covenant, learned the knowledge of good and evil by choosing the evil and rejecting the good. I've often wonder how painful the fall must have been internally. We talk about the burdens that people carry psychologically, the depression, the anxiety, the fears. What, what the first image bearer, the head of humanity, must have felt when he learned the knowledge of good and evil by choosing the evil and rejecting the good. The good now was just a faint memory to him. He couldn't do good. He had lost the good. He had become wholly evil. He had lost the knowledge of God. We see that, don't we? He he and Eve are hiding. They're hiding among the trees of the garden as if the God who made the trees can't see through the trees and everything in the trees they, they think now, foolishly, they can hide from God. Their minds are darkened. Their wills are darkened. The world is darkened. Um, in a moment. Um, that we fell in Adam. Um, the Bible makes it clear that Eve here leads the way. And um, C.S. Lewis in his preface to Milton's Paradise Lost said that um, Eve rejected her maker. She refused to bow to him, but she would instead bow to a vegetable. She would pay homage to the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, The covenant's broken. All men are under the broken covenant of works by nature. That's what it means to be under the wrath and curse of God. All men are, in Adam, covenant breakers. Um, The Apostle Paul in Romans 5 
picks up on that, doesn't he? He says, by one man, death spread to all men. For all sinned in him, even those who didn't commit trespasses like him. We all sinned in Adam. When he reached his hand out and he took and he disobeyed, we were reaching our hands out in him, as it were, him representing us. And, and the guilt of his sin is passed down. Men and women, men and women will not go to hell on judgment day for the bad things they did personally. First and foremost, they'll go to hell because of the guilt of Adam's sin. That's immensely important. Um, God had, had warned Adam. He had said, in the day that you eat of it, in dying, in Hebrew, it literally says in dying, you shall die. In a, in a spiritual death, there will be more death that follows. There will be the death of your descendants. There will be your physical death. There will be eternal death. That there will be a succession of deaths now. And, and you can turn the page to Genesis chapter 4 and, and Genesis chapter 5 and, and there's death. Cain is killing his brother Abel. And then that's that long list of the descendants of Seth. And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. That's, that's not arbitrary. That, that, that Moses includes that so close to the warning in the day that you die, in the day that you eat, in dying you will die. That's, that is the fruit. That is the just desert of Adam's sin. You know, Paul says in Romans chapter uh, six, I believe, the wages of sin is death. That's, that's what God has to mete out for sin. Um, Adam brought all the misery into the world too. He brought the guilt and the corruption. He passed that down to us. He brought all the misery of this world. You know, I, I sometimes think we we allow ourselves to think that we're miserable in this world because of what other people are not doing right. We're miserable in this world because of what one person didn't do right. We're miserable in this world because of what Adam did. All the misery. The Westminster Standards put it this way, that um, Adam brought all the sin and misery into this world and, and all the misery even to death itself and the eternal judgment of God. Um, because Adam disobeyed, we are what we are. And, and there's, there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do about it. You can't take it into your own hands to do anything. You can't fix yourself. You can't redeem yourself. You can't save yourself. You can't clean yourself up. You can't you can't escape the guilt and corruption of Adam's sin. You can't escape. You can't escape the miseries of this life. You know, I, I sometimes fear that Christians, of all people who should know better, are constantly trying to immunize themselves from suffering, from hardship, from miseries. You can't escape them. They're inevitable. They are the just result of Adam breaking the covenant of works and disobeying against God. And so in light of that, secondly, I want us to consider tonight briefly that there is a curse pronounced on those who rebel against God. Um, no sooner have our first parents rebelled, no sooner did Satan himself rebel, that the Lord comes as the judge. And you get the sense that the Lord 
is used to walking with Adam, that he's used to appearing to Adam, that Adam hears the sound of the Lord God in the cool of the day, whatever that means, and, and in whatever form in which he came, and, and Adam is hiding, and the Lord says, where are you? He's, he's seeking the lost. He's, he is coming forward to do what he alone can do, and in order to do that, he has to pronounce a curse. He has to pronounce a curse on those creatures that rebelled against him in the order in which they rebelled against him. And so it's, it's not incidental. Notice, uh, beginning in verse 14, all the way down to verse 19, that the Lord addresses each of the parties who have rebelled against him in the order in which they rebelled against him. He addresses the serpent, then he addresses the woman, then he addresses the man. He deals with each one according to what they have done and, and according to how they have rebelled against him. Satan has brought our first parents into his kingdom. He has led a rebellion against the God of heaven and earth, the creator. He has led them in high-handed rebellion. R.C. Sproul used to say, sin is cosmic treason against God. Sin is cosmic treason against God. And notice that as, as the Lord is pronouncing this curse, he first curses the evil one, and using that metaphorical language says that he would be cursed above all livestock, on his belly he shall go, dust he shall eat all the dust of his life, and then notice the most beautiful verse, one of the most beautiful verses and important verses in the scripture he says that God is going to put war, he's going to put enmity between the serpent and his seed and between the woman and her seed. Now, you all almost certainly know that that is the first preaching of the gospel. God is, before he even pronounces a curse on Eve and then on Adam, he is giving the gospel in its most basic seed form. This is the proto-evangelium. This is God promising to send a redeemer who's going to crush the serpent's head. He himself is going to be bruised. He is promising to send a deliverer, a savior, a redeemer. This, uh, Sinclair Ferguson has said, Genesis 3.15 is, is the, the single most important verse in the Bible, and the rest of the Bible is a footnote to it. The rest of the Bible is just a footnote to Genesis 3.15. God is, God is saying, I am going and I, I am going to come, I am going to send one who is going to do what, what Adam could not do, what Eve could not do. I'm going to send one who is going to come from the woman. He's, he's going to be a man. He's going to be a man. He's going to be the seed, the offspring of the woman. And yet, he's going to be more than a man. Because he's coming to conquer the one who conquered man. He's going to be greater than man. He's going to be greater than the serpent himself. He's greater than Satan. He's going to be God himself. He's going to be fully God and fully man. Isn't that awesome? In the curse on the serpent, God is saying, I am going to come fully God and fully man to crush your head, to destroy your kingdom, to destroy your works. You know, First um, John actually has this really profound explanation of why Jesus came into the world. And it's not first and foremost to uh, atone for our sins, though that is true. He did come to do that. And it's not first and foremost 
for him to set up his kingdom, though that is why he came. Um, John says, for this reason, the Son of God came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. For this reason, the Son of God came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. And here in the curse being pronounced on the evil one himself, God is promising that he is going to come and he's going to destroy the works of the devil and he's going to redeem a people into his kingdom. You know, I noted that the rest of the Old Testament and the rest of the Bible is a footnote to this. And and you see this, don't you? You see it in the conflict between Israel and the nations. Israel and Egypt, Israel and the Philistines, Israel and the Canaanite nations. This is the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Israel being set apart for the Redeemer to come from that nation, that he would be an Israelite, that the promise of God is going to run through all of redemptive history, and at every point there is enmity, there is warfare, there is hostility. It's not about Israel as a nation. It's not about Old Covenant Israel. It's about the the coming seed of the woman, the promised Messiah, and Satan is everywhere trying to destroy that promise, isn't he? That curse that's been pronounced on him, and this is wonderful, it, it will not fail. It didn't fail. It can't fail. No matter how much Satan tried to destroy uh, the Jewish people from whom the Messiah would come in the days of Esther through Haman, it was futile. No matter how much uh, he tried to do it even before that in in the bondage that Israel was in to Pharaoh and the oppression and the, the, the slaughter of the firstborn. He, he couldn't accomplish it. No matter how much he tried to do it when the seed of the woman came into the world. As the second Adam who steps out onto the land and goes in battle array against the evil one in the wilderness, in the promised land, he cannot evade the curse that God pronounced on him. That's awesome. That's incredibly comforting. Even, and this is the most glorious thought, even when Satan accomplishes in his malice and his wickedness, his hatred for the Lord Jesus, even when he stirs up the heart of Judas to betray him and and ultimately sees the seat of the woman nailed to the cross where his heel is, as it were, being bruised because he's going to be raised from the dead. It's like just getting your heel bruised if you can rise from the dead. And, and even in that, Christ, the seed of the woman, is crushing the head of the serpent. The last Adam coming to do what Adam could never do and, and to undo all that Adam did. And in defeating the evil one, he sets his people free. He transfers us from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of the son of his love. He, he redeems his people. He unites them to himself. He says, all that the father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. I will keep. Um, he is the last Adam. It's interesting, the curse that God pronounces now on even Adam um, doesn't seem to carry much hope to it, and yet there will be. Um, to the woman, he says, now in, in childbearing, you're going to have labor pains. It's going to be toilsome. It's going to be burdensome. Um, your relationship with your husband's going to be breached and, and strained, not what it should be. And yet, and yet, she is still going to have a redeemer. 
God's still going to remove the reproach that Eve would have felt by her rebellion by promising to bring a redeemer through her. And Adam, the, the curse that God pronounces on Adam, notice he says, because you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you that you shall not eat, cursed is the ground because of you. Remember, Adam had come out of the ground. God is cursing the very place out of which he had brought man. He is cursing the place out of which everything that sustains man. Remember, the trees had come out of the ground. All the fruit, all the vegetation, everything that man needs for life, everything he needs for sustenance and provision, God is now placing his curse on the ground. And and he says it's going to be burdensome. Work which would have yielded bountifully. The earth which would have been like a fruitful mother, just bearing children constantly, now is cursed. Thorns and thistles. And and it won't yield like it used to yield. And, And it will be burdensome to you as you work the ground, as you labor for bread. You're going to work by the sweat of your brow and it's going to be a a burdensome task. And we can't escape that. You know, it's remarkable to me that people don't believe the Bible when it so clearly tells us exactly who we are and what world we live in. Why else do we have thorns and thistles? Why else in a world of bounty and goodness and delicious food and all the things we enjoy, why is it so burdensome? Why is the labor so difficult? Why do women have those pains? This is not what it was supposed to be. We need to come to terms with the fact, just as Brian said recently, death is not natural. He said this at a funeral. Death is not what what man was destined for, if we could say that, at creation. Um, It's the result of sin. And the curse, we are meant to feel by the curse, because of the broken covenant of works, we are meant to feel that this is not right. We are meant to feel that life in this world is not what it's supposed to be. Um, It's actually a kindness from God. And the Lord could have sent our first parents to hell, wiped out all of creation, and, and just scrapped everything about the world that he had created. And yet God because his plan was to redeem a people, even builds into the curses a usefulness for the benefit of man to look away from this world and for something better, for the hope of restored life. That's what we so desperately need. I need that. You need that. We need the hope of a restored life. And so finally, and just briefly, I want us to consider the reversal of the curse. Now, it's interesting. We've already talked in part about this in the coming of the Redeemer. He is crushing the head of the serpent. He is the seed of the woman. He's coming to do what Adam couldn't do. He's coming to reverse the curse. But but this is marvelous. In the execution of the work of redemption, Jesus stands in the place of Adam, and he does what Adam should have done. He he doesn't do something entirely unrelated to what Adam should have done. Jesus comes and and he he is going to take dominion again for redeemed humanity. He's going to fulfill that mandate 
to be fruitful and multiplied, not by having a physical wife and physical children, but by redeeming a people to himself, by uniting children to himself. You and I, he's, we are his offspring. Isaiah, when he speaks about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, says, he shall see his seed and be satisfied. He shall, we are his offspring. He is fruitful and he multiplies by the life that he lived and the death that he died and through his resurrection. Um, he labors, doesn't he? We've talked about that. He, he begins laboring for the work of redemption in a garden, reminiscent of where Adam fell. But this is what is most remarkable. A number of years ago, I was, um, I was reading Matthew Henry's commentary on um, uh, Luke 22 and Jesus sweating great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. I just heard a sermon and I went home and I opened Matthew Henry and I, I was astonished at what he said. Listen to this. Meditating on our Lord in the Garden with those great drops of blood pouring down out of his body. Matthew Henry said, sweat came in with sin. You need to listen carefully. Sweat came in with sin and was a branch of the curse. Therefore, when Christ was made sin and a curse for us, he underwent a grievous sweat that in the sweat of his face we might eat bread and that he might sanctify and sweeten all our trials to us. Isn't that awesome? Jesus, as it were, sweat out his own blood as he began the work of redemption for us as the last Adam, as he labored to redeem us. And then Matthew Henry in his reflections on, on uh, Jesus wearing the crown of thorns. And you have to listen carefully. Remember, Adam is going to eat bread by the sweat of his brow. Adam is going to have to toil among thorns and thistles. And notice Matthew Henry says thorns came in with sin and were part of the curse that was the product of sin. Therefore, Christ being made a curse for us and dying to remove the curse from us felt the pain of those thorns. He binds them as a crown to him. Think about that. Jesus wore on his head the very symbol of the curse that God pronounced on Adam. That's astonishing. He wore on his head as the sin bearer, as the last Adam, the very symbol of the curse of God for the broken covenant of works. And then, the third part, God says to Adam, you're going to die. From dust you are, to dust you shall return. Listen to this. Henry says, Christ was really and truly dead. He gave up his spirit. His human soul departed to the world of spirits and left his body a breathless clod of clay. Jesus really tasted death for us. The God who pronounced the sentence of death on the image bearers who rebelled against him. The God who said at the very beginning, in the day that you eat of it, in dying you will die, breathes his last on the cross. And he really and truly experiences death. That's astonishing. If we've never been astonished by that, then we are missing something terribly wonderful. The God of life. The God who cannot die as God. In the person of Jesus 
really and truly tastes death for every one of his people. He takes all of Adam's sin on himself. He reverses the curse. And by doing that, he ensures God's blessing for the world to come. I I hope that as we reflect on this tonight and we think about um, this fallen world, we think about why things are the way they are, we think about the burdens of life, we feel the frustrations of life, we, we feel the frustrations of our own sin, our own failings, that, that we will fix our eyes on Jesus. That's what, that's what God would have us do. Fix your eyes on Jesus. The last Adam, the sin bearer, the one who comes to crush the head of the serpent, destroy the works of the devil. In, in a very real sense, if you're in Jesus, even though Satan may sift you, he'll never destroy you. If you're in Jesus, even though you will taste death, and all of us will, you will not taste the eternal death to which physical death leads because he tasted it for you on the cross. One day, and it's going to be a glorious day, we will be standing with the last Adam in glory, and there will be no more curse. I mean, no more burdens. There will be no more sickness or sorrow or death or tears. God will wipe away every tear. Um, We won't feel the frustration of living as deeply sinful descendants of Adam in this world with all of its misery because Christ has entered into this world to do for us what only he can do. What a glorious Savior we have. This is why Luther could say, we're not the right man, the perfectly righteous. Last Adam, we're not the right man on our side, but he must win the battle. That's an awesome thought. I hope that you'll be encouraged this week to meditate often on that. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that as we consider these profound mysteries, as we consider these deep and mysterious truths about you and your Son and your Spirit, about our incarnate Lord Jesus, that you would give us a new sense of wonder and astonishment. Lord, as we feel the burdens of this life, as we go through this veil of darkness and tears and sorrow and all of the sin and the misery with which we are confronted every day. We pray, our God, that you would make us a people who are hoping and trusting in that glorious last Adam, the sin-bearing Redeemer who came to do for us everything that we need. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you. We pray that you would build us up in yourself this week ahead. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.